Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you again. Welcome back. We're going to be back in the book of Romans today. We're going to be learning about how Christians are to live in the already but not yet. How we are to navigate being in this world but not of it. I am very excited to preach this text from God's Word to you today. If you're using the Bibles provided, you can go ahead and turn to page 944 of those blue Bibles. And uh, our text for today is going to be Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 30. So Romans 8, 17 through 30. Anyone ever heard of something called an article? How about a ten wreck? Something called a bilby? I thought I hadn't either on that last one, but turns out bilbies are mentioned in my daughter's Bluey books. If you don't know who Bluey is, some might say you're missing out. I think you're probably fine. But arbols, ten wrecks, and bilbies, what are they? Despite sounding like a new generation of Pokemon, they're actually some of the least known species in the world. One is a subset of hyena, another is like a porcupine, means a hedgehog, and another is like a desert rabbit. In fact, it's estimated that at the absolute most, we've only really discovered and scientifically described about 40% of all the species on Earth today. Anytime a zoologist or a taxonomist discovers a new species, some of the first questions they ask are, well, what does the species look like? What qualities set it apart from everything else? What does it experience? How does it behave? Well, I've got another species in mind for us this morning. What about a person? More specifically, what about a particular kind of person? What about a Christian? What do Christians look like? What qualities set them apart? What defines the Christian experience? And how are they then to behave? Think with me right now. If you were to write down about four or five qualities of the Christian life, what would you write? This is what we are going to look at today. We're going to look to answer from Romans 8, 17 through 30. Namely, what qualities mark a true Christian and what therefore defines the Christian experience? And the way we're going to answer those questions is by examining four qualities of the Christian life. So these are our four points for today. Point number one, adoption. That's verse 17. Point number two, adversity. That's verses 18 through 23. Point number three, anticipation. It's verses 24 and 25. And finally, point number four, assurance. Verses 26 through 30. So adoption, adversity, anticipation, and assurance. And my prayer today is that no matter how you may have come in here this afternoon, friend, no matter what you may be going through or currently dealing with or have gone through or have dealt with or will go through and will deal with, that you would leave today with a renewed sense of hope in the promises of God that are just around the corner. That in a twinkling of an eye, you have an eternal, glorious inheritance awaiting you. This is when every struggle will cease. 
where every tear will be wiped away and where your soul will be forever satisfied and at peace as you enjoy the Lord forever. What qualities mark the Christian life? Point number one, adoption. That's verse 17. And because it comes in the middle of a sentence, let me just go ahead and read verse 16 as well, which we closed with last time. 16 and 17 say, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Really what this is, is a direct link back to the previous text from last time. It's a conclusion and an introduction all at the same time. And remember from last time, this is coming in the middle of the chapter that's actually a whole conclusion in itself. So Romans 8, we have the Apostle Paul concluding his lengthy argument that spans all the way back to chapter 1. Which is that this world and everyone in it has a problem, friends, because of our rebellion against the creator of the universe. And as a result, we've brought death upon ourselves and upon this world. But God has provided a way for restoration through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. That for all of us who would turn from our sin and put our hope and trust in his perfect life, his perfect death, and his resurrection, we can then be united to him forever. But as we saw in the past two sermons in this series, life is still hard. We don't always see, we don't always feel the hope we so long for. Because sin has sought to destroy the world and everyone and everything in its path. But Jesus came to destroy that which would seek to destroy. He came to beat it at its own game, to make us alive together with him. And as a result, verse 16, by faith we've been united to Christ our brother, and therefore are children of the Almighty God. This is what we called adoption last time, and of course, we're picking it up again today as our first point. I said last time, we can't even begin to understand our standing as Christians if we do not first understand our privileges in adoption. I said that how amazing it is to know God, yet how glorious it is to be cherished by Him. The well-known scholar J.I. Packer said that adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers higher even than justification. So friends, get this. Our miserable status has been totally reversed in adoption. Because it isn't just that we've been adopted out of nothing. It isn't just that we've been adopted out of a neutral state. No, we've been adopted out of the worst possible circumstances you or I could ever imagine. We've been adopted out of the household of Satan. And the worst part, left to ourselves, you and I, we wanted to be there. We loved everything about it there, no matter how much we may try and assert our innocence. But God, our Father, said, enough of this, and he sent his Son into the world to make us sons. Like an older brother bursting through the door and taking us home. If children, then heirs, and fellow heirs with Christ. Church, it's an automatic correlation. Children, heirs, heirs, children. If you've been adopted by the Father, he's opened his storehouses to you to draw from his grace from all eternity. Our status as heirs implies an inheritance. 
And the word inheritance carries with it Old Testament undertones of Israel inheriting the promised land. Essentially that in our union with Christ, the heir of all things, we too with him inherit all things. So what qualities mark the Christian, first and foremost, adoption? Adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. What defines the Christian experience? It's simply basking in the love poured out for you and I in the great blessings and privileges of adoption. But hold up, if you look there, it says if. And that's a big if. It says if we suffer with him, as the rest of verse 17 puts it, in order that we might be glorified with him. You see, we share in the son's inheritance only as much as we share in the son's sufferings. Only those who are ready to share in the son's sufferings are those who are ready to share in the son's inheritance. Only those who are faithful in enduring the wilderness now will reap the glories of the promised land later. And that leads us right into our second point for today. What qualities mark the Christian life? Point number one, adoption. Point number two, adversity. More specifically, how adoption informs our adversity. How adoption informs how we face adversity. That's verses 18 through 23. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Thus far in the book of Romans, when Paul speaks of suffering and trial, he is primarily speaking about our struggle against sin. We see that especially in chapter 7 and then the beginning of chapter 8 with our struggle against the flesh. So I cannot be clear enough with you today, friends. Our greatest struggle, our greatest enemy is not everything else taking place out there. It's not everything else going on out there. It's not everybody else's fault. No, our greatest enemy, our greatest struggle is not what's taking place out there. It's what's taking place in here. It's what's taking place in our own hearts. It's what's taking place in our minds. It's the sin of our fallen world manifested in our hearts. But here, what Paul does is he switches from our struggle with sin to our struggle in a fallen world. Verse 17 declares that we must suffer with Jesus. So the natural question at this point would then be, well, why would anybody ever do that? Why would anybody ever sign up for that? Where again, Paul says that we must suffer with him in order that we might be glorified be glorified with him. It's the natural result. 
Here in verse 18, he further bolsters his point by saying that, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So why would anybody ever choose to suffer with Jesus, church? It's because the glory that's coming for them makes any kind of present suffering, no matter how severe or intense, look like a drop in the ocean. Look totally unworthy of comparison. It's not even worth comparing, Paul says. Three things to note here about verse 18. One is, remember, Paul is speaking here from personal experience. This man who scripture says received countless beatings, countless lashes, imprisonments, always on the run, shipwrecked, stoned, bitten by snakes. He's the one saying that these kinds of things are not worth comparing to the glory of what's stored up for him in heaven. He's not up in the penthouse saying that. He is saying that as one who has experienced some of the worst human suffering you could ever imagine. And remember, this is the man who called everything he'd been through light and momentary afflictions. It kind of appears that for Paul, Jesus is better than the comforts and wants of this world. It kind of appears that for Paul, Christ is enough. The second thing about verse 18 is the language Paul is using about comparison here is the language associated with the image of a scale. So picture one side of a scale with something on it and the other side of the scale with something else on it. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, someone who has been through it says those scales can't even be compared. There's nothing close about it. You can see from a mile away that one is way high in the air and the other is flat on the ground. There's nothing here that requires a closer look. There's no need for a second opinion. The third thing to note here about verse 18 is if you notice the word he starts out with, he says, I consider. He considers. Logizimai is the word there, which is where we get the word logic from. Paul is therefore making an entirely logical statement here. He's tasted the suffering. He's counted the cost. He's not making an ill-informed decision. He's not being naive or impressionable or nonsensical. Shout out to anybody here who's ever been told, you're just taking your faith way too seriously. No, Paul says, I've taken a good, hard look at it all. I've analyzed the data, and you know what? You can keep your luxuries in this life. You can keep obsessing over safety and insulating yourself from as much discomfort as you possibly can. You can keep trying to make it big in this life, but for me, none of that holds a candle for the glories of heaven. C.S. Lewis, when writing about the tragic disparities of our priorities in our life, once wrote, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And so this is what it looks like to live in the already, but not yet, friends. Paul, in this section, is telling you exactly what life is going to look like while we wait. He wants to give you a very accurate understanding of what the present as well as what the future will look like. And in a time and day when the motions and mechanics of the world are designed to eliminate the idea of any waiting or discomfort, surely we're going to have to work really hard to endure. Our culture has been conditioned against waiting. Waiting, by its very nature, is often seen as a great evil. A great evil to be at least avoided and at most eliminated. And so how are we doing here today, Christian? When it comes to waiting, is waiting with great patience something you are actively cultivating in your life? Is waiting with great patience something you are actively cultivating in your personal prayer? Think of how many opportunities you had to just sit even for five minutes and pray to God, but you can't be bothered. You've got to get on Twitter. You've got to get on Instagram. You've got to scroll. You've got to see what everyone else has to say to bother sitting down and reading what God has to say. Are you one marked by great patience? Or are you one marked by irritation? Restlessness. Anxiety. Always needing the next optic. Always needing that next purchase, always needing that next vacation, that next compliment to come in, or perhaps requiring everything to be perfectly resolved and comfortable and exactly to your liking in order to be okay, in order to feel okay. Are we really so entitled, everyone, to call ourselves followers of Christ, yet fuck? idea that the Father who appointed His Son for suffering might actually do the same for us. No, to suffer in this life is simply to walk in Jesus' footsteps. We learn and grow through suffering, and the Lord knows this, and many of us here today, if we look at our lives, we also know this. When we're forced to be dependent upon God in trying circumstances rather than our default position to be dependent on our flesh, to be dependent on ourselves and self-sufficiency, that's when we experience growth, is when we trust in God, when we lean into God through trials. That is one of the greatest tests of the genuineness of our faith. And this text tells us that this life will involve suffering. It will involve groaning. It will involve hardship, but also that it will all be worth it. It will all be worth the wait. And although, like I said, our struggle against sin is by far the main struggle that Paul has in mind throughout this chapter in this book. If you look at verse 19, what he does now is he turns his attention to the struggle in a fallen world. So look at verse 19 through 21. Just go ahead and read that. It says... For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, what Paul is saying here is that when sin entered the universe as a result of the fall, not only poisoned our hearts, which it sure did, but it also poisoned 
everything. He had utterly fractured this world and everything in it. If you think of like the world rotating and it set it off its orbit, it set it off its axis. So while the majority, in fact, the main cause of the adversity in our lives is what's going on in here as a result of our own sin, as a result of human sin, the setting of our adversity as humans is in a fallen, broken, and decaying world. The text here says that it's in bondage to corruption, or in other words, in bondage to decay. Think of everything Pastor James prayed about in the pastoral prayer. We have to lean and depend on God because of this world that is enslaved to brokenness. Just take a moment and think about all the ways in which the world is fallen. Earthquakes, pandemics, Hurricanes, wildfires, then you add us into the mix, and what do we get? Greed, oppression, mass shootings, mass murders in the wounds, so-called transgenderism, domestic violence. And think of all the money and the research and the technology and the policy we have to produce in order to try and restrain such evils, in order to try and tame such an evil world. The creation was subjected to futility. It says not willingly, but how have we gotten here? Why are things are the way they are? Well, it's because of him who subjected it to the curse brought about by our first And because we have brought sin into this world, friends, what this text is saying is that we're actually and inevitably at odds with creation. In one sense, creation hates sinful man, and it eagerly awaits for everyone and everything to be made right once again when Christ finally returns to rule and to reign with his adopted sons and daughters as it was always originally intended to be. When the children of God, when the invisible church, when the true citizens of the kingdom are finally revealed, all of creation itself will be finally restored. All in the presence of God. You see, utopia is not possible without God's presence. Pursuing utopia without God's presence is like pursuing life without breathing. So while, yes, we fight for justice, and yes, we fight for morality, and yes, we even fight for conservation, no, we do not expect to reach a finality in it in this life, nor do we look to place our ultimate hope in it in this life. Think with me, even the things that appear flawless in the world. Brother Sharif said some of them in his prayer. Think of even the most beautiful things in the world. Some of the most beautiful things you've ever seen that really are beautiful. That God really does delight in and care for. Like a Hawaiian sunset or the northern lights. Or think of like the Grand Canyon or, or the Aegean Islands. They're all gorgeous. But they're still fallen. They are just tiny, tiny fractions of what is waiting for us. The curse of this world, if you think about it, it's kind of like an infinite photo filter that not only doesn't make the picture look any better, it actually makes it look infinitely worse. It's like every time you picture, you throw on this, this photo, or you put, you put on this filter, and it just looks absolutely terrible. I'm not saying everything in this world looks terrible to us right now, but marred by the presence of sin, again, we cannot even begin to imagine what is coming. Imagine what creation will look like, but also imagine what our new bodies will look like. Perhaps these are just shades of what Paul is talking about when he says, this is not worthy for comparison. 
Verses 19 through 21 tell us that creation has been subjected to decay and corruption. And what verse 22 does is it goes on to tell us more about what that actually looks like. If you look at verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what does the degradation of creation and society look like? Well, God's Word tells us it looks a lot like the pains of childbirth. Like groaning throughout creation and throughout all of humanity. Like decaying bodies and decaying morality in a decaying world. Like the psalmist famously repeated, How long, O Lord? So if you're here today and you're struggling, you're struggling through your own sin or maybe the sins of others. You're struggling through hardship. Maybe you're not sure how you're going to get by. Perhaps you're exhausted and frustrated by the evils and the brokenness of this world or of the world's hatred of the God you so love. Perhaps you're here today and you maybe maybe feel it physically. Your body's just not right. Perhaps you feel it mentally or emotionally. You feel like a shell of yourself this afternoon. I just want to be clear. Your suffering, your trials are very real. They are heavy. But you know what else they are? If you are in Christ, they're seen, they're felt, and they are held by Jesus. Nothing comes as a surprise to him. He prepares us by telling us in this passage that these kinds of trials can be expected. But you know what else? They're all going to be dealt with by him once and for all on the final day. You see, pains of childbirth are grueling. I obviously do not speak as one with experience myself, but with two small kids, I can speak of one who has been present. And while they are agonizing, there's an end to them. Better yet, there's a hope to them because they bring forth new life. Pain for the moment, but hopeful. Temporary, but hopeful. Our groanings as Christians are not so much complainings as they are deep sighs of grief that the world is the way it is. And why, as verse 23, why do we groan now that we have the Spirit? Well, we're groaning precisely because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have the first fruits, or in other words, his down payment is seated in our hearts. We know this world is not how it's supposed to be. And what the Spirit does is he gives us foretaste of the world that is to come. Our final note on this point is at the end of verse 23, it says, We wait eagerly for our adoption. Wait a second, I thought we sit back up in chapter 1 that we've already been adopted. How does that work? And friends, this is what it means to live in the already been adopted. We've already been spiritually adopted by the King of Kings. We're just not yet physically in our new home. Like a certificate of adoption waiting its final realization. A redeemed people need a redeemed place to call home. 
And brothers and sisters, this is why the gospel is so beautiful. This is why the gospel is so precious. Because on the cross, what we see is just how broken, just how evil this world is in all of its calamities and transgressions. And Christ conquers everything. He bears it all in his body on the cross that he might die and therefore put to death with him all that came upon him like one jumping on a spiritual grenade of sin and death for you and for me. What qualities mark the Christian life? Adoption, adversity, and now we turn to anticipation. Point number three, anticipation, verses 24 and 25. Those read... For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So five mentions of hope in these two verses alongside the words wait and patience. What does Christian experience look like? What does the Christian life look like? Well, it looks a lot like Christians waiting. It looks a lot like Christians waiting well and being full of hope in their waiting. Full of hope in the Savior who died for them. Full of hope in the Savior who is returning for them. It's this eager longing for what we cannot see, yet we know is coming. It's this heavenly anticipation. Again, this is what living in the already but not yet looks like. Adopted sons and daughters eagerly awaiting our heavenly home as we endure the momentary afflictions of this world. Really, the entire storyline of the Bible is how God fulfills his promises to save humanity and restore creation. And this text is getting to the heart of that. And notice these promises are for the future, not the present. No matter how bad we may want it all now, this is why the prosperity gospel is so anti-gospel. Because it holds out to you and writes all of these checks it can't cash because God has not promised any of them. Like children in the car saying to their dad, Dad, are we there yet? And the father replying, no, son, soon. And so we find ourselves at a place in time where we're simply waiting for that to happen. Just as Israel waited not very well in the wilderness and then in exile and then through the generations of seeming silence for the waiting for the Messiah. I've heard it said that the whole Bible is basically just about God wanting his people to trust him. Will you trust him today? Will we trust our God? Will we anticipate his arrival in the midst of the adversity we face? Because the two very much go hand in hand, friends. Isn't it apparent, if you think about it, that there is greater humility... There is greater dependence. There is so much more perspective and clarity. There is so much more of a longing for the future when the trials of this life are present rather than absent. Some of the sweetest times in my life have been when I've had everything stripped away. The the, the medications of this world and its pleasures have, have nothing to offer compared to a sweet, intimate relationship with Christ. And that is amplified when we have nothing left but Him, when we've reached the end of ourselves. You start to see what really matters. You get a glimpse of what actually lasts, what's worth living for. 
I once had a seminary professor who talked of heaven as an acquired taste. There's only a specific type of people who would actually want to be in heaven in the first place. There's only a specific type of people who would enjoy being there, and that's, of course, the people of God. He compared it to coffee and how rarely will someone drink of coffee for the first time and absolutely love it. I remember when I was younger, I don't know, four or five years old, my first ever taste of coffee, I thought it was chocolate milk and it scarred me for life. And I swore I would never do it again. Fast forward into college, it's finals week, and I'm like, all right, let's try it again. Let me try one of those like mocha things. And sure enough, I took one sip in the trash, never again. Over time, I began tasting it more and more, spending more time with people who loved it, and they started introducing me to something called lattes, which is basically warm milk with a tiny, tiny bit of coffee. And now, I cannot have my coffee every single morning. The more and more you spend time with it and tasting its goodness, the more and more you come to cherish it. That's what we're talking about here with the acquired taste of heaven. And so if heaven is an acquired taste, this life is how God has seen fit we acquire it. As he takes us from death to life and as we love him and as we trust him and anticipate his coming in the midst of struggle, not apart from it, we acquire this taste for heaven's joys. Because enduring hardship as Christians grants us the clarity to cling to the cross of Christ as he carries us into our heavenly home forever. The longtime preacher in the UK, Stuart Oliot, put it this way. He said, having the foretaste, we long for the feast. But the foretaste is in itself the guarantee that the feast is to follow. This is why one way of looking at death is that it's entirely necessary, friends. It's almost like an act of freedom rather than something to be scared of. It exists to free us from these bodies destined for death in a world full of death. So yes, while the physical pains we feel are terrifying and scary and hard, and the public tragedies we see are intimidating, they're also just signs that the old is passing away and the new is coming. It's these birth pains. What qualities mark the Christian life? How are we to wait and wait well in the already but not yet? Well, we do so with great anticipation, with eager longing to pull up from the verse, uh, the word in verse 18. The word there, what it does, it, it indicates you kind of have your neck stretched forward. You're on your tiptoes waiting for the glories to come. So the Christian life, it's marked by adoption. It's marked by adversity, by great anticipation. And now finally, point number four marked by assurance. Verses 26 through 30, if you want to read along with me. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. In order that they might be, or that, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Isn't it amazing that as we consider the majesty of God and the wonders of his grace towards us and Christ on the cross, and even despite our continued sin and rebellion against him day after day, still, even still, he's not left us to ourselves. Still, even still, we are not left to ourselves to muster up enough strength on our own as we try and grind out enough hope through hardship. He doesn't say, look at everything I've ever done for you. Now it's your turn. No, he says, look at everything I've ever done for you, and I am here with you. Who is like our God? Who gives us all we could ever need for assurance of hope in this life? We see three means of assurance in our fourth point for today. You can think of them as subpoints if you like. The first means for assurance we have in our Lord is that we have the help of the Holy Spirit. We're told in verse 26 that the Spirit Himself helps us in our weakness. Isn't that amazing? When you're at your lowest, when you're at perhaps your loneliness, God's Spirit is there with you to comfort you and guide you. In the immediate context of this passage, we see that the Spirit is specifically helping us in prayer. So, two things here. The Spirit helps us in prayer, one, because we are so embattled with sin in our own hearts that we can't even pray properly without God's help. We're distracted by temptation. We're consumed by fear, by pain and rejection. Our flesh is constantly sowing seeds of doubt and unbelief into our hearts. And second, the Spirit helps us in prayer even when we feel so weak. We don't even have the words to say. Even when we're so weak, we don't even know where to start. Have you been there? Perhaps for some of you, you're there right now. Perhaps you're exhausted from the constant evils of this world. You're tired, worn just by the grind of life or feeling like failure week after week once again in your struggle against sin. God sends his spirit chiefly for you. He sends his spirit to help you, to strengthen you, to pour the love of Christ into your heart, to deliver you finally into heaven. Right now, at this very moment, if you are in Christ, his spirit is with you to take your needs before the Father, to comfort you, and to carry you home. In verse 26, what it does, it goes on to say, we don't even know what to pray for, but that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So while we pray according to our will, the Spirit intercedes and prays according to God's will. And we're told that he groans. It, it, it says he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And this is now the third time we're seeing groanings occur. So we have the creation groaning, we have us groaning, and now we have the Spirit groaning on our behalf. Friends, that's why here at New Covenant Baptist Church, you see us pray so often. It's not because we think it's the most entertaining thing for visitors, nor because we, we just pray for the sake of prayer in and of itself. No, it's taking our requests, our needs, our groanings to the Father as the Spirit intercedes for us. It's called a prayer is the chief exercise of faith. That's why we do things like our monthly prayer meetings. 
That's why we do things like early morning prayer. That's why you've heard like 18 prayers here this morning. Not really, but I'm maybe close. God intends prayer to be one of the primary means for us to endure through this life, to endure as a church, as His Spirit helps us along the way. Verse 27 can be a, a bit of a confusing assortment of words, perhaps. Essentially, what that's saying there is what some have called a perfect line of communication to God. That while we pray with like almost like an aimless traveler without a map, the Spirit serves as like a GPS who takes us right into the heart of God as he prays God's will. And thanks be to God because of his grace, we not are only able to pray God's will, we're able to live God's will. And this leads us straight into one of the most popular and well-known verses of Scripture. Drum roll, please. Not actually. Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Remember, I, I said we have three subpoints, the three means of assurance. The first means of assurance is the help of the Holy Spirit. Well, the second means of assurance here, subpoint number two, is our conformity to the Son. It's God's commitment in conforming us to Christ. Without a doubt, it's very common for Romans 8.28 specifically to be used incorrectly. You can uh, put it right up there with Philippians 4.13. Jeremiah 29, 11, to put it bluntly, uh, this verse is not the Christian equivalent of, quote-unquote, everything happens for a reason. Typically, when people say everything happens for a reason, it's essentially synonymous with saying something like, let fate decide, whatever that means. Rather, what Romans 8, 28 is saying is that the Father is active and intentional in everything. He's active and intentional in everything, and he is working all things for your eternal good. And on that, friends, let me ask you something. Be honest with yourself. Are you open to the idea of your good potentially not necessarily being right now? What about perhaps even at all in this life? I'm not saying this is always the case or that life is meant to be lived miserably, anything like that, if that's what you're hearing. Please understand, what I am saying is that if you're a Christian, your best life is not going to be right now. You will not get everything you've ever wanted. Because if you are a Christian, your best life cannot be now, because everything you've ever wanted can only be attained once you're at home with Christ. Christianity does not mean that everything goes right for us, at least right now. But it does mean that everything is bound to go right for us then. And so if you're struggling for hope today, if you're trying to hope through tears or perhaps even numbness, you're not really sure how it's all going to work out, know that God's sovereign hand is carrying you with finality to eternal blessedness and peace. This life is a blip on the roadmap for where we will spend eternity. Because as we read that God is working all things together for our good, we have to keep reading. Our good, it says, is in direct accordance with His purpose, not ours. And what is such a purpose? 
It says, well, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's our conformity to the son. That's his purpose. It's to make us more and more like Jesus, to make us stronger Christians, to be perfected as we're conformed into his likeness. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Just a few quick thoughts on this. Let me be clear on what this does not mean. This does not mean that God in his sovereign knowledge like looked down through the corridors of time to then see who would believe the gospel and who would reject the gospel to then make a decision upon his predestining choice based off of that. That would make God's salvation ultimately dependent upon us rather than dependent upon him. Not to mention also it, it totally ignores essentially everything going on in this text. The word here used is prognosco, which is a very particular, intimate sense to it. And what I mean is this is not just God happening to know something about something. It's not just him knowing something is going to happen, like a weatherman forecasting it's going to be cloudy. Rather, it's God loving a specific people with a distinguishing, electing kind of love that leads to their predestination. Pastor Steve Lawson put it helpfully when he commented that what it doesn't say, it doesn't say what he foresaw. It says who he foresaw. It's not referring to events or circumstances in the future that he foresaw. This person loved me back, therefore I'm going to love him or her. It's not knowing about, it's personally knowing. So God sets his sights upon a people, then destines them to be with him forever. That's his purpose. And it goes on to say at the end of verse 29 that this is all so that Jesus would, quote, be the firstborn among many brothers, that we might be conformed into his likeness and be made as he is. That we would be glorified in our resurrected body as he is. Which takes us into the timeline for the process of how that happens. Our final verse for today, verse 30. It says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there it is. The unbreakable chain of our salvation. The third means for our assurance sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of the Father, and the completeness of our salvation. Start to finish, it says, those whom he predestined, he also called. So God's calling on our lives, friends, is not so much an invitation as it is a summons. It's not a passive, hey, just come along if you're interested, or hey, if you're good enough, you might actually make it in. No, it's a you are mine. And I'm going to justify you, and I am going to glorify you. God, who knows all, determined a particular people to play a role in his grand plan of redemption. And if you're sitting here today trusting in his son Jesus, that's you. That is you. And notice the surety of your deliverance. They're all past tense. Like if you were sitting down to read a, a history textbook, 
And it's talking about an event that happened in the past. It's talking about an event that happened in history. Your salvation is such a done deal. This text considers it to have already happened in the past. You're just living through it now. The Father predestining us from eternity past, calling us to be a child of God, justified by Christ's work on the cross, and glorified as something that's already been achieved. We're just waiting to experience it. The three means of Christian assurance, the help of the Spirit, our conformity to the Son, and the sovereignty of God the Father in our salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Past, present, future. Our triune God goes before us. He helps us along the way. And he will finally deliver us into his heavenly kingdom. You know, to conclude, back when people began following Christ for the very first time, there was a name for them. It was a derogatory title. The, the, the term was used to ridicule and to mock the early believers as a religious minority in the Roman Empire. It was a label designed to identify them as essentially pathetic outcasts. What was that label? It was Christian. They were called Christians. Little Christ, it means, which was intended as a slur. Because the Christians of that day had a lot in common with one another. They were followers of Jesus Christ. They took God at his word. And they were sharing the good news with just about everyone they came in contact with. But you know what else they were marked by? They were marked by their spiritual adoption as sons and daughters of God. They were marked by the adversity they faced for following Jesus in a fallen world. They were marked by the great anticipation they had for Christ in and return. And they were marked by the assurance they had in their God's care for them in life. And if you're here today and you've been adopted by the Father, and if you're battling through adversity, and if you're looking forward to Christ's return, and if you have an unwavering hope because of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, and friends, I would just say, you're looking an awful lot like a Christian. And that gives you great cause to rejoice today. Let's pray. Lord God, there is none like you. Creating a people for yourself, forgiving our trespasses, giving us an everlasting hope, sealed by your promised Holy Spirit. Lord, we praise you for all that you are, all that you've done, all that you promise you will do. And Lord, it's in Jesus' name.